Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which includes One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, where Dan Lucas talks to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, hosted by our women's program director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our assistant director of national events, Pete Cargianis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or you can subscribe via iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Today's guest on Cover Stories with Chess Life is the author of our July cover story on the 2022 National High School Championship, which was held in Memphis, Tennessee in April. He's also the author of a series on the Tarash defense that will wrap in our August issue, and he has written quite a few pieces for U.S. publications, uh, U.S. chess publications these past few years. Alex King is a teacher, a player, and a father, currently residing in Memphis, Tennessee with his wife and daughter. He comes from a very talented family with musicians and artists of multiple stripes, including his sister, Caroline, who was the photographer at the 2022 National High School and whose photo graces the cover of this issue. Seriously, folks, um, she did an amazing job. She blew away our expectations. So if you need a photographer, hire Caroline King. Alex, for his part, is a skilled pianist. And he often posts videos of his original compositions to his social media accounts. I'm speaking to Alex today after having the toughest time scheduling this interview. He was on vacation. I was on vacation. We both had conflicts. But now, we've cleared time to talk. And I expect to learn a lot about Alex in the time we have. Newly minted Fide Master, Alex King. Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life. Um, from where am I speaking to you today? So I am here in Memphis, Tennessee, in my house, um, where I do all my work, uh, all my teaching, my writing, my scheming, uh, even my piano playing. So thanks uh, very much for having me on the podcast, John. It's an honor, and I uh, look forward to our conversation. I am excited to have you here. Now, it's it's funny. I feel like I know you mostly because of social media, but in truth, we have only met once. And do you remember where that was? That's right. Yeah, we, we, we met at the St. Louis Chess Club. I don't know what year that was, maybe 2017 or something like that. Uh, I, th- I want to say 2019. Uh, because uh, 2019? Oh, later than I thought. Okay, got it. Uh, yeah, what, what tournament? Was that, wasn't that like the U.S. Championship slash U.S. Junior slash U.S. Senior or something? Or was that a different tournament? I'm not sure if it was the championship or the, the juniors and seniors. But yeah, I, I walked in and uh, there he is. And I was like, my God, it's Alex King. I know that guy. Yeah, we had we we had a selfie together, which I I I can picture. So it 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 did it broke the internet. Yeah, it 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 feels like it's been it feels like it feels like it's been five years since that time, but uh, only yes. in in the pandemic years. So uh, the temporality of pandemic living, we we could talk about it for hours. Um, let, let, let's talk about your cover story, and then I want to talk about uh, the the Tarash series. Yeah. Um, so you wrote. Uh, I, I think a really nice uh, overview and summary of the 2022 national high school championship, which uh, 
by luck, happened to be in Memphis. Um, tell us about your general impressions of the event and and what it felt like to, to see a national tournament in your hometown. Well, I enjoyed the event a lot. So as I write about in my article, I was uh, present at the event on behalf of the Dalton School uh, in from New York City. And their uh, program director, Beatrice Marinello, um, invited me to uh, assist her in coaching the Dalton squad at the tournament for the weekend. I don't work with Dalton with the Dalton program regularly or anything. Uh, and I haven't in the past either, although I know some of the individual kids, but, um, but yeah, she was looking for, for someone to assist the the team for the weekend. And, uh, since I live in Memphis, she asked me, I've worked for Beatrice in the past, um, at some other school programs and stuff for her nonprofit. And so we knew each other for, for a while from when I was living in New York. Um, and so, yeah, I was happy to do it. Um, I was happy to be able to, you know, um, be at a big tournament like this for the whole time and get to see the action uh, close up. So, yeah, I mean, the, the tournament seemed like it went really well. Um, I got to uh, see a lot of people in person who I had never seen in person before. Like I met Dan Lucas in person for the first time. We had known each other virtually for years, but I finally got to meet him, I met Carol Meyer. And, um, I met, uh, a lot of people, um, who I hadn't, and I also, you know, got to see some other people who I have met before, but I hadn't seen for a while, Jen Shahadi and a bunch of other people. So, um, so yeah, overall, the, the tournament was really fun. And, um, as I say in my article, like, you know, the last time I was at a high school nationals was like when I was in high school, I think in 2007, uh, Kansas city, I think. Um, so yeah. Uh, so it's been a while <laughs> and it was great to be like back with the energy of all the kids and the competition and everything. I enjoyed it a lot. And then also, you know, like the <laughs> Dalton did very well in the tournament. They, they won the top section as a team. And so that was awesome to be able to, you know, kind of ride that wave of success. What, what is it like working as a coach at an event like this, and, and and in particular, working with such a uh, prestigious, high octane program like Dalton, is there a lot of pressure on you? Or I mean, do do you feel responsible for the wins and losses? Well, everybody, I mean, Beatrice and the parents and the kids. Uh, I don't think any of them were putting pressure on me. Like you know, um, if I you know didn't measure up that I was going to, you know, be blamed for anything less than success or anything like that. There was, there was, there was no negative pressure like that, but I think there was a lot of positive pressure in that, you know, all these kids and the parents and Beatrice are just like all like, um, they're just like all highly performing individuals, you know, that they, they aspire to be the very best. And so they have a lot of sort of natural, healthy pressure on themselves to just do the best they can. Um, and so that was great. I mean, that was awesome to, to get to work with these kids. I mean, you know, Dalton has like, I mean, there were like maybe seven or eight, um, kids at the tournament from Dalton. And like, I mean, uh, uh, one of them, uh, their top player, uh, FM Gus Houston is like, 
about the same rating as me, or maybe, you know, approximately. And, uh, you know, there, there were, there were several kids, you know, I mean, like, I feel like all of the kids in the program are like better than I was when I was their age. So, I mean, it, it was just, uh, I was just really impressed by, by the kids and how well they played. And I mean, as far as my role, you know, I was helping them, uh, prepare their openings for specific games. I was helping them analyze their games afterward, um, and giving them, you know, psychological and sporting insights and, you know, making sure to encourage them to get rest and, and eat in between rounds and stuff like that. Of course, their parents were all doing a great job of that already. So, um, and, and same thing with Beatrice. So, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was a great experience working with them. I really enjoyed it. Now, your, your sister, Caroline, um, did the photography for the, for the event. And I, I would suspect, I, I would actually lay very good money that this is the first time in U.S. chess history to have a brother and sister doing the cover and the cover story. Um, we're hoping to talk to her. We're going to try to make that work and, and insert this somewhere into the podcast. But just in case we don't, um, how did she get involved in this whole mess? Yeah, well, you know, uh, Dan had put out, Dan Lucas had put out the sort of uh, open call for um, photographers in Memphis and I guess in like Columbus and the other um, like uh, nationals um, of the season. And, uh, and I think he hadn't gotten any takers in Memphis. And so he contacted me directly because he knew that I was in Memphis and uh, asked me if I had a, a, a photographer recommendation in town. And, um, I do know some photographers in town, but I selfishly wanted to take the opportunity to get Caroline to, to come visit me and my family for the weekend and, and get her the gig. And so, um, you know, I, I sent, I, I, I sent Dan, uh, her website and he really dug her stuff and, and she was available and, you know, um, all the logistics were worked out. And so, yeah, she, she um she did the gig and stayed with us and it was just fantastic. I had a great time. Yeah, it's um it, it was startling looking at the photos as they came in, um, just how good they were. Uh, you know, and and certainly not to, you know, I, I'm not trying to compare it to any of the other photographers we've had, but um I, I think definitely in my time with US Chess, these were uh some of the best photos I've had taken for us. Um so well, that's awesome. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Um uh, I'm sure she'll be happy to hear that too. Uh, so thanks on her behalf if she doesn't get to 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 tune in uh, for this episode. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I I dug the photos too. I thought her photo her photos were always great. It's funny, you know. Um, as I told Dan when when I recommended Caroline to him, you know, like she doesn't do um, like uh, much photography for events like this. Um, so she mostly does like personal portrait photography and like she does weddings and a few other things like that, but not, not a lot of like, you know, corporate or business or, or big event photography like this. And so, um, I mean, I figured she would do a good job, but I mean, you know, most of the samples of her work that, uh, you know, that Dan was able to look at were just like personal and portrait photography. So, yeah, but I mean, she's just great. So I'm not surprised she did a great job. Totally agree. Um, uh, so hopefully there will be a, a separate, short podcast interview that goes along with this, but just in case we've, we've covered our bases here. Um, let, let's move on. Let's talk about your, your series on the Tarash defense. Um, yeah. Right now, the July issue contains the fifth 
of six uh, installments, and I have just finished laying out the sixth installment, which, by the way, Alex, let me tell you, was a real pain in the tuchus. Oh, was it? Um, it was. This was a tough one to lay out, and and I'll, I'll explain why when we get off when we get off the call. Um, let's let's talk about the Tarasha bin. Um, yeah. I came to you and asked you to write this and asked if you'd be interested, really, because I know you play the Tarash. Right. Um, and I'm, I don't think we're giving away any secrets here because anyone can look in the database and find these things out. Why Why is the Tarash a good opening for improving players to pick up? Yeah, so this is something that I try to, to uh, convey clearly in, in my series, like the, the reasons why I'm recommending it. Um, some of the main reasons are, first of all, that it's a sort of system opening. So you can play it not just against D4, but against Knight F3, against C4, against G3. I'm talking about move one here. Um, so it's sort of a, a, a one-size-fits-all opening for everything except for one E4. Um, so so that's uh, a big benefit, uh, for especially for club-level players. Which is, you know, what 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 my series is explicitly um, aimed toward. So for club level players, I mean, I remember when I was a club level player, I had very poor preparation for one knight f three and one c four and one g three, and of course, the people who played those moves against me were usually like stronger club players than me, or like you know master level players, and so. You know, I was underprepared. They were already stronger than me, and I just got atrocious positions every time. I mean, I remember this one, like nineteen hundred, when I was like a twelve hundred uh, as a kid. Who, you know, I mean, I feel like I lost to him like four or five times in the English as black. You know, and so, um, so the Tarash is like an opening that you can play against the English, and then you don't even—they don't even get to play their normal English stuff. It's like just going to be a Tarash, or it's going to be you know some Tarash-like thing. So, um, so that's one of the big benefits. Uh, another big benefit, and, and this is something that I think you had in mind from the get-go when you asked me to write this series, is that the Tarash leads to very classic pawn structures, like the isolated queen's pawn and some other ones that I talk about, like hanging pawns, stuff like that. And so it's, uh, you know, th- these, are th- these are classic um, things that chess players should learn uh, at some point in their development. And so to play an opening where you are constantly getting these standard pawn structures, you know, it's just like a great way to, to learn about the rich, you know, positional, uh, and, and tactical ideas in those structures, which will help your chess in general. I mean, not just because you'll get, um, isolated queen pawn structures from other openings, but just because like, you know, knowing about, isolated queen pawn structures will help you even in unrelated, even in other structures, you know, understanding the, the balance between strategic and tactical factors and stuff like that stuff that that's, that happens all the time in isolated queen pawn structures and other structures like that will just help you become a better chess player in general. So like I said, that's something that, you know, I think you had in mind from the get go and, and you've reiterated that, you know, along, along the way of us doing these various, um, installments in the series. And so, yeah, I think that's, I think that has come out in the series pretty well. Uh, so some of the feedback I've gotten from readers is that they felt like it was, um, that was very beneficial to them to have the sort of structure oriented explanations and stuff. So, um, 
so yeah, th- th- those are two of the biggest reasons why I, you know, I recommend this opening in, in my series and to my, to a lot of my students too. What kind of, what, what kind of research and, 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 and uh, work did you do to sort of craft the repertoire? I mean, did, was it based heavily in personal experience? Did you, you know, how, how did you go about choosing the specific lines that you did? A lot of it was personal experience. So I have many tournament games uh, as black and the Tarsh, also as white, um, and and a ton more online games in the Tarash with both colors. And uh, I save all of those games in my own uh, personal database, and I analyze them. Uh, and so almost all of that uh, analysis was already done ahead of time, even before you asked me to write this series. And so, um, so you know, probably I had to do less work than some other people, you know, like the latest uh, book by Cyrus Lakdawalla on an opening that he doesn't play yet. You know, he probably has to do a lot of new original research and, 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 uh, you know, gain, gain, play a lot of, uh, games, uh, maybe online blitz games himself to, to get more experience in the opening if he doesn't already play it himself. But for me, I mean, I already have been playing this for a long time. So yes, a lot of it was personal experience. Now I, I also did do some new original research while I was writing the series, um, because a, a few of the lines in the series are, um, are not the lines that I've mostly played. Uh, so like, for example, uh, in, uh, in part five, in, uh, this issue, you know, talking about, um, playing against white's various sidelines, like the London and stuff like that, the Kali, some of those lines and some of those move orders are like not the normal move orders that I choose. Like for example, D4, D5, Knight C3. Usually I play Knight F6, but in the, in the, in the installment, my recommendation is 2E6. I mean, I was trying to sort of make it unified where black is playing 2E6 almost all the time when white doesn't play, you know? So, um, so anyway, so I did have to do some original research, uh, for, for some of those lines. And so, you know, I'm, I'm using chess base. I'm, I'm using mega database. I'm looking at games of strong players. I'm also sort of revisiting the, um, the books and, and, uh, stuff that I have on the Tarash, which, you know, is going to be discussed in, in part six coming up. Um, so, uh, yeah, sort of, uh, Sort of all the normal, the normal resources that uh, that uh, an openings you know analyst would use. One of the things that I've noticed, uh, you know, when I was going through and, and checking your work, and um, you know, trying to make sure there were there was nothing that that needed to be tweaked or or you know um, changed, is is that the engines tend to really like uh, the the attacking side, so to speak. Um, or, or you know, the, they, they like white against the Tarash. They, they, there is, there does seem to be a bias against the Tarash uh, for people who, who listen to Stockfish very heavily. Um, why, why do you think the engines dislike playing with the isolated queen pawn so much? And the reason I ask is that if uh, you know, I'm a little older than you are, but I, I remember in the mid '90s, um, you know, when Fritz three uh, and and, and uh, Fritz three in particular. Uh, when it was starting to beat grandmasters and it was always playing for the isolated queen pawn because uh, for some reason, the activity that it got was enough to cover up for some of the, uh, the strategic uh, weaknesses that the engines had at that time. And and now things seem to have switched. I mean, you know, the, the Tarash seems a bit dodgy for, uh, for our Silicon friends. 
is is that something we need to worry about as as club players? It's a really interesting um, insight, which I didn't know. I didn't know that um, computers used to be more keen on on those structures than they are now. But um, but regardless, you know, uh, I, I don't think it should be particularly worrisome for players below a certain level, and that level is like higher than my level. Uh, so, like all the way up to FM level or, or maybe beyond, um, Stockfish saying that, you know, a certain Tarash standard theoretical position is like plus 0.6 or something for white. I just don't think is, I think that that is just above our pay grade as like, you know, non-international professional players. Um, because, you know, like if your games are being decided by, you know, getting a zero face, you know, having, you know, being 0.6 for white out of the opening, then, wow, you must be playing, you and your opponent must be playing extremely accurately after that, for that to be the, the margin of like victory. I mean, first of all, it's not the margin of victory. I mean, when you think about it from a, from a really hyper objective sense, 0.6 is not winning for white. And so if it's not winning for white, then it's playable. You know, I mean, this stuff like slight advantage, clear advantage, these things don't exist in reality. They're just ways that stockfish, they're just like sort of approximations by stockfish um, because it's not like, it's not seeing all the way to mate from move 10, you know? So, you know, uh, assuming that it's not like a forced loss, then it's playable. And everything in between a, a forced draw and a forced loss uh, is, uh, is sort of up for debate. It's up for preference, you know? And so, uh, personally, um, for my preference, I like having uh, an opening that has these advantages of being systematic and teaching me about chess in general. And I, to, to me, and I think to a lot of club players, like that's much more um, that's much more important and beneficial than you know having a position where Stockfish emphatically says zero point zero or something like that. You know, and 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 by the way, there are players much stronger than than I am who have the same attitude. I mean, you. I mean, just think about all the people who play the King's Indian defense. The King's Indian defense is also an opening that Stockfish thinks is like at least plus 0.6 for white. And yet everybody and their mother plays it, you know, including like some of the strongest GMs in the world. So like, you know, uh, if Nakamura can get away with playing the King's Indian in the FIDE Grand Prix, then, you know, you and I can get away with playing the Tarash in what in whatever tournaments we're playing in against similarly rated players. That's that's my attitude. Well said. I like that. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think we're of the, the same mindset here. Um, yeah, it's, um, the Tarash, I, you know, uh, I, am certainly, uh, not a particularly strong player, but I know learning it, um, and, and studying the structures and, and being forced to play actively, uh, was good for my chess because it, um, it made me work on a part of my game that I was not naturally comfortable with. So uh, anytime you can stretch yourself and, and expand your comfort zone a little bit, I, I think that's probably a good thing. Um, so, and I, I will say, you know, working on this uh, project with you um, has brought the opening back into my game. I, I, I shouldn't tell people that because I know everyone's preparing for me listening to this podcast, you know, uh, for the club nights here in Omaha. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, 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 I've seen it coming back and, uh, 
it's a lot of fun. Sweet, man. That's great. That's like, that's like the best endorsement I could hear. There you go. It's, it's got the Hartman seal of approval. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about you. Let's talk about how you got started. How did, how, how did you learn to play chess in Nashville? What, what was the, what's the origin story for, for Alex King? I, I mean, I started playing competitively when I was in middle school. My middle school had a chess club. So fifth grade, 1999. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I played in my first tournament that, that fall semester of my fifth grade year. And I just like loved it immediately. I wasn't really like good at other sports or anything like that, but I was very sort of competitive in my own way. And so it was perfect for me. And, um, I was also talented at it. I mean, I improved pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, I played lots of tournaments, uh, all throughout middle school and the first part of high school, you know, so I, 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 my first, you know, I peaked, I peaked out at like 2,200, uh, in like midway through high school. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, at, at that point I actually, my chess went into sort of a low tide cause I got a lot more focused on music for a few years, but, uh, then eventually my chess tide rose again, um, uh, sort of at the end of college and I start. I went to college in Los Angeles. And so then when I started playing again, so yeah, sorry. What, what were you going, what were you going to college for? Why, why go from Nashville to, to LA? Was it the sunshine? Was it, wh- yeah, what, w- what exactly drew you there? I was studying music at USC. So first of all, USC has a very, um, notable music program. Um, the sunshine, sure. I mean, we get plenty of sunshine down here in Tennessee, but it's a different vibe out there in LA in many ways. That's for sure. Um, and what instruments were you playing at the time? Uh, I was I was focusing on the double bass, um, uh, which you, but not our viewers, can see behind me in my my workroom here. Um, but uh, but you know, I, I always played a lot of piano too, and. Um, when I stopped um, playing music professionally and started doing chess professionally, which was around the time that I, you know, um, started playing chess again at the end of college, you know, um, I, I kind of stopped playing the bass as much and and mostly focused on piano. I mean, now a lot of the music that I play is just by myself here in my room, so it's a lot more fun uh, to play piano by yourself than to play the double bass by yourself. Um, it's a much better solo instrument. Um, so anyway, um, but, uh, but, but yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, I went out to LA to, to study music. There were a lot of other benefits to great food and, uh, being, you know, near the ocean and being far from my parents and other, you know, fun, fun stuff like that. So, but, uh, yeah, I mean, um, when I, when I left LA and I moved to New York in 2012 to start teaching chess, uh, actually that was the last time I was ever in LA. I have not been back a single, I have not been back to LA even once in the past 10 years since I left. So I, I've left it behind. I got to tell you, I appreciate you, you doing the segues for me because th- this was, <laughs> I was going to go straight from Southern California to, to being sure. in New York. But, um, before yeah. we get there, I, I you know, it, it feels like this is a good time to talk about chess and music. Um, yeah, you know, there, people often say that there's, you know, there are only three realms in which, you know, prodigies really are prodigies, right? Like chess, music, and mathematics. Um, and, and there, there have been books written about 
the relationship between chess and music or, or the relationship between genius and the two fields and, and whether or not there's some sort of relationship there. Uh, what do you think attracts people to chess and music? Is there a similar mindset? Is there a similar, you know, quality of the soul, so to speak, um, that, that brings the two together? Do you find some sort of synergy between music and chess in your life? I absolutely find in my own life a synergy between chess and music. I I have never been able 100% to put my finger on like what is the connection between them. Um, you know, I get this question a lot. Um, and so I think about it a lot. I haven't quite cracked the case though. I mean, so, something that's similar um, about those two fields is that they both are sort of like their their own dimension, um, their own sort of language. Um, so, you know, as we, I'm sure that you and I both know a lot of chess players who don't have a lot of real world savvy or skills, and yet they can still excel. No. <laughs> and yet they can still excel in chess. I was certainly like that <laughs> when I first started playing chess competitively in fifth grade. Um, and same thing with musicians. You know, there's a lot of musicians who, are, you know, not highly functional in the real world, but they're highly functional in music. And so I think that's somehow a similarity between them where like they are closed or semi-closed arenas in which people can excel, even if they are um, (laughs) uh, deficient in certain um, (laughs) general purpose uh, skills. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of prodigies are like that. They they are people who wouldn't necessarily excel in the real world as normal people. They can only excel as exceptional people. They can really excel as exceptional people, but they need a sort of arena in which to safely do that. And so chess is like that, and I think music is like that, and, and maybe math too, although I'm not any kind of math prodigy. Um, so... Yeah, the, the fact that they're sort of um, separate dimensions, um, you know, they're, they're all very abstract. Um, music, chess, and math are all very abstract. And so they involve a lot of sort of abstract reasoning, spatial reasoning, um, sort of um, making connections between things um, that are often unconventional, maybe, um, or unexpected. So, um well, they're they're also very creative in my mind. I, I I think that chess to me is a very creative activity, and um, I don't think everybody sees it that way or experiences that way, experiences it that way. But I certainly do. Same thing with math. You know, I mean, I read these interviews with these like genius Fields Medal winning mathematicians or whatever, and they all seem to really consider it a creative activity, um, and so. Somehow the creative side of it, I think, is also something that unites those fields. But again, I, I don't have it all worked out. This is just sort of my hunch. <laughs> In my own experience, no, this, chess and music are certainly, they feel very similar. Uh, I've talked about this before with other people, but yeah, they, 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 they feel very similar. They inspire me in similar ways. I, I love them in similar ways. Um, so I, I, like, I like the way that you, you spoke about them as both being a sort of language and, you know, on a very basic level, anyone can appreciate a chess game if they knew the moves and anyone can appreciate a, a pretty song, but, you know, uh, 
very precise changes in a, in a jazz standard uh, aren't going to be heard by a lot of people in the way that I suspect you'd hear them. Um, and the same thing would be, you know, uh, certain moves, I would imagine, in a chess game that, that may not have the same beauty for others because they don't have the experience or understanding to, to see why it could be so beautiful. Um, we, we could talk about this all day. I, I did want to sort of follow up with two questions yeah. about it. Um, there is, there is this sort of competitiveness among chess players and not just because it's a, a two person game, but it's also, you know, the rating factor that, that, that we all have this, you know, especially today with the, the, you know, adult improver and chess punk hashtags where we're, we're trying to optimize ourselves and optimize our learning and, and, and trying to sort of, you know, show who's more ascetic than others and in, in studying seven hours a day and this sort of thing. Um, is there that same sort of competitiveness in the music world? Is it, is there something different about chess that, that lends itself to that competitiveness in your opinion? Well, I think that, um, I think it's a bit of a different culture, you know, um, chess is seen by many as sort of like a, a proxy for intelligence in a way that music is not. And so I think chess more attracts these type of people who are trying to like hack, you know, X, Y, Z aspect of their life and then like optimize it, you know, um, rather than music, which is like, you know, I mean, music is, it's very difficult to figure out what the point of music is, what the goal is. It's very open-ended. I, what, I feel the same way about chess sometimes. <laughs> I, I mean, Maybe that, that's personal. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, there's not necessarily a specific goal in music like there is in chess where the goal is to win. So, and so since, because of that music, um, <laughs> it's hard to hack because, uh, there's, it's much less clear how good you are at it or whether you've won or not. <laughs> um, and so yeah, it, it's just more, it's just more open-ended. So, so it's, it's a bit, it's somewhat less competitive in that way. And I think it attracts, um, it, it attracts often attracts a, a, a different type of, of, of person um, from, from the sort of, um, <laughs> from the sort of people you're describing. So um now, I mean, th th there's still a lot of competition in music. Um, I would say that a lot of the competition in music is um, is professional, you know, because um, there's a lot more music professionals than there are chess professionals. Um, and so that, I guess, is the aspect of music that the competitiveness gets channeled into. Whereas, you know, in chess, all these adult improvers are like obviously not competing with each other for like chess teaching jobs. They're, they're competing with each other, you know, in terms of their, their ratings or their, you know, the, the um, self-punishingness of their study routines or their, you know, uh, Twitter wittiness or whatever it is that they're competing with each other on. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a different vibe in, in that sense. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I like to think of myself as always trying to improve at chess and at music, but I got to say something about this adult improver culture um, turns me off. Uh, I mean, even the term adult improver, I find sort of off-putting um it 
it's 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 like saying that you play adult chess or something like that. Like as well, it's like trying to trying trying to I protect mean, yourself from the dangerous kids, you know, somehow. Well, but this is I mean th- this is where you and I I think are in a slightly different place um because I mean you are you know you're you're a very talented chess player. Um and uh, whereas I am the typical run of the mill potser who you know who who has dreams of getting back to 1900. I was almost there. I was one one fable day I was almost there and then everything just fell apart. Um and and I certainly like it is frustrating to sink time into something and to try to get better and then to play a kid who wipes the board with you, you know, while eating dunkaroos and drinking a juice box. <laughs> and 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 I, I think everybody who's listening to this will will understand that. And and so, you know, on the one hand, I I absolutely get the the imperative to to sort of take the you know the the, the neoliberal um, you know self improvement model right where we you know where we 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 we've optimized all the other forms of our life and we're going to optimize our hobbies, but that that's the part for me that I can't do. Like I, it's got to be fun, and and you know I I I realize that probably you know I, I just got a book of uh, Samogin's games um, by Michal Marin. I realize playing over Samogans games is probably not going to be the thing that gets my chest to be the best it can be. But sometimes I just want to have a cocktail and look over a fun game. And, and I think that's okay. And I, I think, I think that's gotta be okay for most of us or we're going to burn out. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, um, it's almost like by being openly ambivalent about the fun side of chess, you're revealing that you don't, do it to enjoy it in the first place. You just do it like sort of to prove something to yourself or to hack it or something, you know? So I think, I think it's, um, I agree that that often leads to burnout and frustration or, you know, Twitter, Twitter wars or whatever all these people are doing with their time. But, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. So like when I was a kid before I started playing chess competitively, um, chess was like this thing that like, you know, uh, we had a chess set in the house. My grandfather had a chess set in his apartment. He had some chess books on his bookshelf next to the bridge books and next to the, you know, Camus and next to the, like, you know, Cezanne. I mean, whatever, you know, like it was just like, it was just another aspect of like being a cultured person. And, um, uh, and so, and a grand piano in his apartment, you know, and well, whiskey, I don't drink whiskey like you do, but you know, it was all sort of the same thing. It was, hey, wait, it, wait, wait, what are we talking about? I, I just mean like, I, I just have a little I, bit. I just mean, I just mean like I didn't, uh, I didn't <laughs> absorb that aspect of his cultural life, but I don't know, like it, it just seemed like just, um, a, a part, part, part of, of living like a, a, a cultured life. And, um, and and so I still think of it that way. I still think of chess and music as these as these things that just are, are part of like living the good life, and not like the good, like rich life either. Just like the good, like you know, cultured middle class person life. And uh, so, um, so yeah, I don't know. There, <laughs> there's something about that. You know, there, there's something where that's not present in some of these people, you know, who, who approach it purely from like a hack, hack the, you know, 
hack the chess sort of sort of perspective. So this is not at all where I expected our conversation to go. And now we're going to get a lot of letters, Alex. Well, I'm going to get a lot of letters and you'll probably just get hate mail on Facebook, but that's fine. Um, let, let me ask you one more question about the relationship between chess and music. Um, and then we'll move on. It's interesting. You mentioned Cezanne. And, and the reason I ask this is, you know, my, before I was a, a chess writer and editor, um, I, I thought I was going to be a philosopher and, and my training was in uh, phenomenology. And I read of uh, a lot of Maurice Merleau-Ponty, uh, who talked about synesthesia, uh, which is the sort of different sensory fields becoming coextensive. Um, sometimes chess moves have a certain color for me. Yeah, like they're blue or red, or and I, I don't know why. I'm not. I'm not like a you know. I'm not an artist, I, but they, they have that feeling for me sometimes. Do do chess moves ever have tones or song or or sounds for you? Yeah, I don't know. Like not not it not in not in any kind of surface level way, but it's all sort of swishing together in the brain box for me. Um, you know, um, a lot of times I'm thinking about chess while I'm playing the piano, or I'm thinking about music while I'm playing chess, or I'm thinking about both while I'm doing the dishes, or when I'm falling asleep, or this and that. So um, yeah. I don't know if I have any particular synesthesia, but they're they're right up next to each other, at least. So Let, let's let's jump to the to the time in your life when you moved to New York to teach. Um, yeah, I, I suspect. I mean, you know, uh, doing you were teaching for chess in the schools. Is that correct? And move uh, when I moved there, right at the beginning when I moved there, I was planning to work for chess in the schools. But then I got hired by the Marshall Chess Club, and I just right. started te- doing a lot uh, doing a lot of independent. Um, teaching work lessons and doing, you know, um, uh, doing like one day a week school programs for various different schools. I was working for Beatrice and I was working for Nelson Dunn and, and so just some working for the Marshall, you know, school programs and lessons and stuff. So yeah, I, I, I ended up not working for chess in the schools cause I was sort of, um, oh, I, there was also a period where I worked for success Academy, um, uh, t- teaching there that that was not full time. It was just like a halftime gig. Um, but anyway, so yeah, eventually it just became all freelance private lessons and, and Marshall chess club stuff. What was that like for your game? I mean, you know, Nashville, a uh, lot of chess players, but it's not New York, mm-hmm. Los Angeles, same sort of thing. Um, you get to New York and you, you know, you get to the Marshall, which I, I think by that time, you know, the Manhattan was, you know, dead and buried. Yeah. Um, but you know, th- this is the epicenter of of chess, in one of the epicenters of chess in America. Yeah. What What was it like to be there every day? It was absolutely fantastic, just from a cultural perspective and the perspective of enriching my life. And I played an incredible ton of chess while I was there. I mean, I think I um, I, I can look this up, but I, I mean, I think I played like um over 150 tournament games a year for like multiple years while I was there. Okay. I'm looking it up now. Uh, in, uh, in 2012, 13 and 14, I played over 150 tournament games each year, standard tournament games. So I was just playing a ton, which was awesome. And, you know, meeting uh, a lot of the, you know, regulars of the Marshall and of the, and of the New York scene, you know, Jay Bonin, Asa Hoffman, Michael Road, um, tons of people like that, which, uh, 
a lot of the Georgians, Kashishvili, Kekalidze, Gelishvili, um, Irina Krush, you know, Lenderman, uh, pe- these people who were playing at the Marshall all the time. So that was fantastic. I mean, I got to play all those people um, many times. And, uh, but, but it's interesting that my rating did not change very much in the years that I lived there. I had already become, I had already 300 USCF before I moved to New York. Um, and in the four years that I was there, my rating did not, uh, did not increase very much. I mean, you know, it, 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 it oscillated up to 2375 and then back down to 2325 or something like that. So even though I was getting a lot of experience and I was studying a lot and I was playing a lot and I was in a very vibrant community and having a great time and enjoying it, um, I didn't actually make as much improvement until I left New York and moved to Memphis. And, um, and so I don't know what it was. I mean, maybe I was sort of building up latent strength that then manifested later, you know, had to be somehow ignited by some other factor. But, um, but yeah, on paper, I was sort of, I was sort of plateauing even with all of this. That, that gives us the perfect chance to talk about coming home, so to speak, coming home to Tennessee. So you, you, you were telling me off camera, you, you met your wife, in New York. Right. And then she ended up uh, becoming employed at the University of Memphis. Right. And so you guys, back to Memphis you go. And and how far is Memphis from Nashville? It's a three-hour drive. So, you know, like we still can go see my parents easily whenever we want or they can come see us or whatever. So, yeah. So you're, so you're back to Tennessee. You're, you're in driving distance, but not too close. So you, you have excuses. Um, and you, you come back to Memphis and, or where you go to Memphis, I shouldn't say come back. Um, right. And you're teaching, and then you get involved with the Memphis Chess Club. Yeah. Um, tell me about the Memphis Chess Club. Yeah. So the Memphis Chess Club has existed for a long time, but uh, a couple of years ago, it sort of um, experienced like uh, like an identity transformation when um, a businessman, uh, Casey Hill, um, took over. The, the Memphis Chess Club, it was a, it was a, a benevolent, uh, a friendly takeover, a, a voluntary takeover on, 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 by both sides, um, and turned it from just like a, your average small local chess club nonprofit into a, um, into like a normal business um, with like a physical brick and mortar location. That's also a cafe and restaurant. Um, so this was like a very grand vision by Casey. Um, he is, uh, like a real estate developer, or I don't know what the correct term for it is, but he owns and, uh, and manages, uh, residential properties in Memphis. And so he had this lobby space of this apartment building in downtown Memphis that he could have put a, a planet fitness in or, you know, a bar or something, but instead he wanted to put the Memphis chess club in there and make it, like I said, a, a cafe and chess club, um, as a business. So it's not a nonprofit, it's a business. And so, um, and so as he was, you know, planning all this stuff out, he hired me to direct the chess operations for this, so I wasn't 
you know, presiding over the cafe side of things, but, but over the chess side of things. And, um, and yeah, so I did a lot of the sort of planning, you know, uh, planning what tables we were going to purchase for the tournament room and what, um, chess sets we were going to purchase and what our initial offerings were going to be in terms of our schedule and our classes and our tournaments. And I directed those tournaments and taught some of those classes all on the front end of this process. But I only did that for maybe a year, I think. Um, eventually, I again sort of returned to what I'm doing now, which is just all freelance stuff. Part of that is that um, uh, my wife and I had a, a daughter in uh, uh, 2020, uh, right in the first few months of the pandemic. And, uh, and so with having a kid at home, it, we just eventually decided that it was much better for one of us to be working from home for logistical reasons, especially in the pandemic with uh, a lot of uncertainty regarding will daycare have to shut down and quarantine? Will someone get sick? This and that. And um, and so, yeah, eventually I left my, um, you know, my gig at the at the Memphis Chess Club. And, and now I just teach teach lessons online from home and, and write for you and other stuff like that. You, you, you talking about your daughter, uh, this is, this is something that we share in common, um, because I have a, a daughter who's a little older, right? but, um, I did the same thing. Um, you know, stayed home with her. Um, one of the reasons that I'm so pleased to be working for us chess is that we're distributed and I can work from home. And like this morning when she had a tummy ache, I could take her to take her to, you know, to summer stuff a little bit late and that was fine. Right. Yeah. Being a dad and having other commitments has certainly changed my relationship to chess. It's made me less narcissistic. That may be hard for people uh, who know me to believe it. It has (laughs) certainly been one of the ego shattering, humbling experiences of my life. Um, but part of that is that it has sort of decentered the priority of chess in my life. I, I suspect maybe this also has something to do with why I see myself as a chess amateur as opposed to an adult improver. Uh-huh. I'm wondering what effect this has had, the, the experience of being a father has had on your chess game. Do, do you think it's changed your relationship at all or is it is it still too early to tell? Well, it might be too early to tell in some ways. But in in other ways, it seems clearly to not have changed my relationship to chess on a fundamental level. I mean, um, I uh, maybe one of the most obvious ways that it's changed my chess life is that I I certainly play in fewer tournaments that I used to because I just have less time to do that. And yet I still play a lot online. And when I do play in tournaments, I still enjoy them thoroughly. I don't think of them as, I mean, they're not more stressful now than they used to be. I mean, I don't appear to be performing worse in them than I used to be. I mean, I've had some of my best results of my life in the past year. And so it, it doesn't seem to have um, uh, affected my strength in a negative way. Um, I guess maybe I do study a bit less than I used to, because again, I just have less time in general. Um, but I still get to do some studying. So I don't know. I mean, uh, it's, um, it's, it, it hasn't changed my love for chess and, and now I'm even getting to share some of that 
love with Cecily, my daughter, you know, she's like learning the names of the pieces and stuff like that. So, um, so that's cool. Um, but yeah, uh, I actually think, <laughs> I, I know that this is going to sound crazy, but like, I actually think that all of the stress and, um, trying aspects of parenthood maybe have actually helped my chess in some way. It's like what you're saying. It sort of shakes you out of your own head a bit and forces you to like, um, you know, juggle a lot of things at once. And, and there there's actually can be some chess benefit to that, you know? I mean, especially since I was sort of stuck in a rut, a plateau for a long time, like in the 2300s USCF, and then sort of being jolted out of that forced to do a whole bunch of new things and, carry Cecily with one hand while I open the door with another hand while I, you know, avoid stepping on a Lego while I plan, you know, when I do the dishes and all this other stuff. And Oh God, you, you <laughs> the Legos. Oh, I'm, I'm past that phase, but I have not forgotten the. Yeah. So, so somehow pain. it feels like, uh, somehow it feels like it's helped me in chess. Now, I don't know if I'm going to be able to ride that out indefinitely i mean somebody made a joke about this my wife and i are, are having another daughter in november and somebody so, thank you somebody my uh on facebook said okay one daughter you make fm the second daughter you make i am i mean i don't know whether it's going to be ex- ex- exchangeable for currency all the <laughs> no, way like no, that no, but no pressure alex I, Jeez. but hey you know whatever <laughs> i'm cautiously optimistic about it i guess so um so yeah, I don't know. Um, I, it it, um, it hasn't. Uh, in many ways, it has not changed chess for me. The biggest way is that just that I play less, uh, play play fewer tournaments. Well, th- this this definitely leads into the last thing I wanted to talk about with you before we before we take our little quiz. Um, oh, here we go. You know, uh, you're living in Memphis. You are one of the top players in the city, and and one of the top players in the state. Yeah. Um, you are not getting to face regular opposition of your own strength. Yeah. Um, you're having to travel to places like Charlotte or New York to do that. And and it's it's certainly great that those opportunities exist. But what is it like trying to stay sharp when you're one of the the very top dogs? And and how do you how do you prevent, you know, your rating getting bled away by by having to play lower rated players all the time? Yeah, well, I mean, so first of all, just from a mathematical perspective, again, I'm not a mathematician, but to my understanding, playing lower rated players per se is not the issue. The issue is playing underrated players. So playing lower rated players should not in itself be bad for your rating because that the rating system is designed for your rating to reflect your strength regardless of your opposition. But if you're opponents are lower rated and underrated, then yes, that can be, that can be bad. But, um, in Memphis, at least, um, there's not, I mean, since it's a a bit of a smaller chess market, there's not a constant influx of like new players who are potentially very underrated. And so I don't actually feel like I play particularly underrated players that often like I would if I went and played in the World Open every year. I mean, I played in the World Open last year, and I definitely played some underrated players, and I had to fight for my life not to lose more rating points than I did. I managed to sort of redeem myself. I mean, like I lost lost to 
I mean, I lost a, like down 400 points Vita in the first round to a very strong young player, you know? And so I think the risk is higher when you go play in a big open tournament like that for playing underrated players than just playing the same people at your, in your local scene who have, you know, who have accurate ratings and who you've been playing for a long time. So, but, but, but regardless of the underrated thing or the rating thing, I think a lot of people would lose steam and lose motivation playing lower rated players, even accurately lower rated players all the time, being the top dog, not playing, get, getting to play higher rated players enough. And I do miss that. Uh, I mean, of course, I can play higher rated players online, but, but as far as, you know, um, standard tournament games. Um, but I don't know, for me, uh, maybe I'm a sadist, but I don't mind like playing uh, lower rated players a lot and, and just trying to like score 100%, you know, <laughs> whenever possible. Um, I don't mind that. And also, I think my workflow of um, fastidiously saving and analyzing all of my tournament games, regardless, and even many of my casual and online games, regardless of the rating of my opponent, and and um, noting all the good and bad things that I did, regardless of who I played or whether I destroyed them or not. You know, I mean, I think that that workflow has been beneficial in in not having me like atrophy or lose motivation or or get complacent or anything like that because i'm still critiquing every game i play you know with my with saving it and analyzing it so i mean mean, even if i play a 1700 and i beat them pretty easily if i go back and analyze it afterward and i find one mistake i mean okay there we go i mean it's not a perfect game i get to critique the mistake maybe i even get to aggregate it into my overall like mistakes I make in the Carlsbad or mistakes I make in Rook end games or something. I don't know. It's just, it's all water under the bridge. If you it's it, everything is potentially water under the bridge, you know? So I don't know. I think that that's helped a lot. The, the analyzing of games and, 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 and do you see that as being sort of as important for improvement as a lot of authors do? Cause the, I think there is, there, there's some dispute on this now because you'll hear people say, you know, that there are, you know, IMs who, you know, just run the game through the engine and they're done with it. And uh, you know, whereas you seem to be espousing the old Botvinnik style, you know, analyze or the, I'm sorry, Jesse cry, Jesse cry style. Hold on. Hold on. I got it. I got to interrupt you, John. I do not subscribe to Jesse cries annotation philosophy, nor Botvinnik's annotation philosophy. I certainly use the engine from the get go when I analyze my games and I do not write a novella handwritten <laughs> about my games. Okay. But, um, but I don't just flick through the moves on my phone and then not. I mean, I save the game. I analyze it manually with the computer. I mm-hmm. save the analysis in my database. I then aggregate these data points into larger patterns and trends. Like I said, you know, things I'm doing wrong in the Carlsbad or I'm always missing the knight h5 move, regardless of the structure, or I'm <laughs> not pushing my pass pawn in the middle game enough, regardless of the structure, or I'm constantly not putting my rook behind a pass pawn in the end game, or whatever it is. So I generate, I manually generate data using the computer as high quality data as I can within a reasonable time frame, and I aggregate that data as best I can. What's a reasonable time frame, just out of curiosity, per game? I mean, I I I, I spend like sometimes as little as five minutes on a single game analyzing it if it's like a crushing win with not a lot of inaccuracies by me 
but some, but, and, and then I also try not to spend more than like 30 minutes on a single game. So I don't, I mean, I try to keep it smooth and sustainable because it, I think it's much more important to analyze as many games as you can, you know, with a certain minimum level of thoroughness, then, you know, it's sort of like 80, 20, you know, I mean, you can, you can spend 20% of the time and get 80% quality data. And then to get up to, to get the remaining, you know, 20% quality data, you have to spend 80% of the time. And it's just not sustainable uh, if the goal is to be sort of analyzing as many of your games as possible and then aggregating them, you know? I mean, yeah, you can spend, you know, a week analyzing one game, but like, I don't think it has that much added benefit. And meanwhile, you didn't do anything else that week. You didn't study tactics you didn't i mean you know like you, you didn't study end games you, all you did was sort of indulge in analyzing this one thing and that's sort of how i feel about the the jesse cry method um i have a lot of other thoughts about it but i don't want to i don't want to you know uh hijack the conversation next uh, you, you can write this up for chess life and we'll have another one of these cover stories um there we go there we, we go we are about an hour in so i do want to uh, i do want to wrap but before we do that um I, i'm not a, i'm not sure if you listen to the podcast regularly but if you if they do. do. I vaguely remember that you have like a lightning round, don't you? Uh, it's kind of like a lightning round. So what I like to do is I like to ask everyone a, a series of questions um, that were made famous by the inimitable uh, James Lipton on Inside the Actors Studio. Right. Um, now, what's curious is that Lipton actually got these questions from uh, Bernard Pivot, who based he himself based them on uh, questions questionnaires that Marcel Proust would, would ask himself and write down the answers. So I, I've modified them. Uh, for a family-friendly audience, and and to avoid a few things that may not work for for this format, but um, Alex King, are are you ready to answer the chess version of James Lipton's questionnaire? I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. All right. I'm going to bring it. Here we go. Alex King, what is your favorite word? My favorite word. Um, I use definitely a lot. All right. Definitely. What is your what is your least favorite word? Uh, whew, my least favorite word. Um, oh gosh, it's going to be one of these like uh, it's going to be one of these like buzzwords of the moment. Content creator. That's my least favorite phrase currently. Man, we are going to get so many letters after this. I think it's offensive. Yeah, I think it's offensive uh, to call. I mean, it's it would be like calling Proust or Cezanne a content creator. It's just like absolutely offensive and inappropriate. Shots fired. All right. What is your dream of happiness? Just living a normal middle-class life where I don't get, you know, burdened with the crushing medical debt or one of the other hazards of, of modern American life. Just like living, living a, a normal, comfortable life, not being rich, but also not, you know, um, being painfully, strugglingly poor either. The American dream. I'm, I'm going to keep my mouth quiet right now. Um, towards what faults do you feel most indulgent? Impracticality, as my wife will attest. Um, uh, just sort of uh, following my dreams and my instincts and, and not, uh, you know, thinking enough about what's actually uh reasonable um my, my wife always makes fun of me once you know we were uh when my wife and i were moving in together i was like gonna move my bed frame from the apartment that i was living in into our shared apartment and 
like wouldn't fit through the door. And I was proposing this ludicrously impractical solution involving like sawing off the headboard. So she always uses this phrase saw off the headboard to uh, as a metaphor for whatever my latest ludicrously impractical idea is. Um, <laughs> who would you like to see on a new banknote? Um, Maurice Ravel, my favorite composer. The deep cuts here. I like this. Alex, um, what opening do you love? Um, the Tarash is up there. Um, and I also really like the French. Those might be my top two. What opening do you hate? Do I hate um, uh, the Queen's Gambit accepted? I struggle a lot to get an advantage against the Queen's Gambit accepted as white. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, for several years, I have wondered whether I could become a computer programmer. I have a lot of students who are computer programmers, and I'm like, with that skill set and their ability to do crazy computer things. So, um, yeah, I guess in another life, I, I, I could be a computer programmer. What profession would you not like to do? Um, something in, uh, business or finance. I, uh, I find those fields philosophically troubling and also very unappealing from a day-to-day um, quality of life perspective. Last question. Fide master, father, content creator, Alex King. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, Um, let's see something in Yiddish. Um, (laughs) I'm trying to think of something specific. Uh, well, I don't want to use profanity, but anything in Yiddish would be fine. Fair enough. Yeah. The profanity would be tough. I've, I've had to catch myself a couple times over the years in this. Um, Every Yiddish word is at least somewhat profane, so it's tough, yeah. And that's why I (laughs) like what I know of it. (laughs) Alex, um, if anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, what is the best way for them to find you on social media or uh, anything like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, they can find me on Facebook, you know, I'm just under my real name, Alex King. I'm now on Twitter uh, as Alex King Chess, and that's also my email address, alexkingchess at gmail. Uh, my new email address. So uh, they can, I'm also on Lee Chess. I have an unpronounceable and unspellable name on Lee Chess. But if you Google my name and Lee Chess, my name's listed on my profile. You can find me that way. Any of those avenues is great. I welcome welcome all the hate mail and the love mail and everything in between. You said it. I didn't. Uh, (laughs) Alex, um, this this really, um, this has been a delight. And uh, I, I, I suspect we're, we're going to get some comments, but um, bring it on. That's, that's all I have to say. Yeah, I, I've loved it too, John. Thanks so much for, first of all, you know, having me write the, the piece, all the other pieces that you've had me write for the magazine. And thanks for having me on the podcast. And I, I 
found that conversation delightful too. So let's do it again sometime. Brilliant. All right, Alex, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to this edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return next month on the first Tuesday, when we will again be making a deep dive into the pages of Chess Life magazine. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you're already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Thank you and good chess. Chess.